Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Jay Raffaldini of Raffaldini Vineyards in Rhonda, North Carolina. Jay was a lot of fun to talk with. We enjoyed his passion for making great wine and discussed how he's bringing that to life here in North Carolina. Planting a vineyard in North Carolina was a risk that Jay embraced head on. And as he tells us, you can only learn from taking risks. Jay has a philosophy that life is meant to be slower. Everyone at Raffaldini puts a lot of effort into making the whole experience as relaxing as possible so that visitors can unwind and get away from the stress of daily life. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we're here today with Jay Raffaldini of Raffaldini Vineyards. Uh, Jay, welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you. So Jay, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the wine industry. Yeah, so that's a long and winding road. Uh, born and raised in New York City, spent uh, my entire career on Wall Street. In fact, I still work on Wall Street. And one of the things that I learned very early on when I was on the trading floor was this saying is, there are old traders and there are bold traders, but no old and bold traders. Because eventually <laughs> something's going to go wrong. So you need to have a second act in your life. Mm. There's not many old people that, that work on trading floors. And I've always had an affinity to wine, not just from an appreciation standpoint, but but really the communal aspects of wine and what it brings to the, the family and the friends. So that was a natural draw for me. And I had to figure out in my career in the late 20s, over 30s, how that was going to manifest itself, whether it was through just having a fancy wine cellar or actually doing more with it. And happily, I ended up doing more with it. And the decision on on North Carolina was basically made in the three-step process. The first step is I'm working in New York. It ruled out the West Coast. Yeah. It's just too far problematic. And then really... <clears throat> At the time, 20 years ago, when I was looking to start the endeavor, North Carolina really wasn't a wine region at the time, so I really just had three things to focus on. You have the Finger, you have the Finger Lakes, upstate New York, mm-hmm. you have Long Island, and, and then you have Virginia. So what drove my thought process here is the style of wine that I like. Okay. I like big, structured reds. So that ruled out the Finger Lakes right away. And then it had some potential for Long Island, but I absolutely detest Cab Franc. You couldn't, <laughs> if I was dying on a desert island, you couldn't get me to drink it. I'd rather <laughs> die. So, and that's the main grape of Virginia. So, uh, and, and, and particularly uh, of Long Island. So then, as I did more and more research, I said, well, you know, let's just kind of dig into Virginia, see there's more to do outside of this main grape. And then I discovered North Carolina kept popping up in the same time, the history of growing grapes. And the more research I did, North Carolina, the more people it got to me, mostly because it's even hotter here. Mm -hmm. And that will allow me to get the ripeness for the red grapes that I wanted. So how did you decide on your specific vineyard site itself? So that was the uh, another interesting part of the journey, because when you have when there's no established wine region, you have endless choices, and that can be overwhelming. Sometimes if like if you're not the valley, you know you have to grow cab. Whereas in a region that's not known, you just don't know what to grow. You don't know where to grow it. So I hired a consultant from Napa Valley who was in charge of the vineyards for Ravenswood that make the big Zinfandels. And he was charged with finding us the right location. So he looked at 62 pieces of land. We found this one. And what made this one special was several things. It had to be the right elevation. Mm-hmm. 
So we're about 1,300 feet elevation. It had the face north and east. That way, it's a, the colder aspects. And more importantly, it had to be completely infertile. Okay. Because when you look at all the great vineyard sites around the world, they're rocky, smoky, right. godforsaken things. And another expression that I like is, and it actually, uh, it's an Italian expression, is the land the farmer rejects, the vineyard accepts. Because, because the reason is that a grapevine wants to produce as much grapes as possible. And as you know, this is the only business where quantity and quality don't, are, you know, are not correlated. So we want the vines to struggle, and this is a very poor fertility area. It's on the slopey, rocky hillside. Uh, and that's why I bought it. Now, we've heard a very interesting story about when you first came here to the, the site. Do you want to go through and tell us that story? Yeah, so uh, we had to do, once we narrowed the site down, we had to do some soil analysis to make sure it was, uh, it, there was proper fertility or, or lack thereof. Infertility. Infertility, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so I was walking with a consultant, and it was an abandoned farm at the time. Um, so there was like three cows on it and nothing going on. It was overgrown. So he had a shovel, and I had a white bucket, and we were going to take soil samples around. And uh, we went to a couple of places, and I'm carrying this white bucket, and I noticed that wherever direction I went with this white bucket, the cows were following me. <laughs> I haven't seen a cow in my life. I'm a New Yorker, right? I've seen cockroaches the size of cows. I just haven't seen a cow before. No. Right? And so I, I, I noticed, and I'm kind of getting freaked out, and so I start to pick up my pace a little bit, and the cows start picking up their pace. And so now I'm pretty nervous. So I basically start to jog, and the cows are just breaking into a sprint <laughs> right, right behind me. And so I'm just going right for the fence line, and then I have my first experience with an electric fence. Oh, fun stuff, huh? <laughs> I had a torrent of F-bombs that would make a sailor blush. <laughs> and then I said to the consultant, I was like, what the f***? So I said, well, what was this about, right? And he goes, they thought you had food in the bucket. I said, well, now you tell me. <laughs> just drop the bucket. Drop the bucket, exactly. I mean, he was I just enjoying exactly. this, this scene in front that was playing out in front so, of him. Is uh, this on video somewhere exactly. or YouTube of this? <laughs> it could be. I mean, I was muddy and I stung. And it was not pleasant, let me tell you. So but, do you have any idea at that time that this was going to be the site, mainly because of that experience? <laughs> or Well, it's funny you say that because when I first set on the property, I do believe in karma, and it just felt like this is the place for me. And it's hard to see, you know how it is when certain places that stir up your soul a little bit for the mm-hmm. right reasons. This one said, "This is the place." And at the time, there was very few vineyards in North Carolina, and it was it was a it was a it was a, a leap of faith. But I think anything great is always a leap of faith, and uh, that's that's why we're here. Nice, it's a good feeling. So when was the when did the first vines go in and, and what varietals did you start with? So uh, the original purchase uh, was forty two acres, and I subsequently bought another sixty. So whole property is one hundred and two, and I bought the forty two acres in two thousand and one. But true story. So I signed the uh, it's on my fortieth birthday, ah. and <clears throat> my wife had a big party for me. So uh, the mortgage was in front of me. And I'm signing the mortgage, and, you know, the song comes on the radio by Dean Martin. Money burns a hole in my pocket. <laughs> my wife said, this is a really bad sign. <laughs> so that was in 2001. And then we spent a year just kind of getting it ready. 
because it was it was overgrown. There was a lot of uh, there was some some timbering needed, but it was just uh, needed to be sculpted. So our first finds didn't go in the ground in 2002. And as I mentioned before, because you didn't know what was going to work here, right. I decided to plant a lot of different varietals to see. So we planted about 15 varietals, uh, Northern Italian mm. and some French, and uh, that was 30 acres right off the chute. And we had a, a lot of what we call experimental projects going on. And then over the life of the next 17 years, uh, we, we went up to 42 acres planted and have ripped out all 42 acres two times. Wow. So the entire vineyard's been ripped bare twice. Okay. It's all really about finding the, uh, the best grapes that are going to work for what it is you're trying to do. Exactly. And I think and this also it goes to the, the very first starting point that, that I had is you need to know what style of wine you want to make. And that tells you where to, where to put your vineyard and then what grapes to grow. So it's kind of a three-step process. And I like big, structured reds. And therefore, I needed to have enough heat. Mm -hmm. I needed to be rocky and infertile. And then I needed to figure out the varietals. So the first mistake I made was I went with a lot of northern Italians because I love Barbera and Nebbiolo. But the problem was it's not a northern Italian climate. Okay. You know, it's more of a central to southern Italian climate. So as I drifted further south with my plantings, I did the Sangiovese, the Montepachon, the Segnatino. They tasted like these grapes are supposed to taste like. So that's when that was part of that shift. I, I ripped out the French varietals because I just hate anything French. <laughs> not, 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 nothing more, yeah. nothing more scientific than that. <laughs> and then the problem, what I also discovered is, is that you might have the right grape, but you might have the wrong clone. Sure. Mm, yeah. And particularly with a thin skin grape, the clone variation is critically important. So even if we had the right Sangiovese, we had the wrong clone, we still ripped it out. Mm. So we're at the point now where we still have only 33 acres bearing because we're in the final stages of finishing up the planting. Okay. So, you know, some people are like, you're mad ripping that out. But I think this is the outcome is that you have an average grape, gives you an average wine, and ripping out a grape is much cheaper than having wine that nobody wants to buy and it's already bottled. Exactly. So, and as a trader, the first thing you learn is to cut your losses early. Mm. And so pull it out. And try again. So that and vines can last sixty to eighty years. So why not have something that can run the distance? Yeah, and if you're going to be producing a mediocre wine for sixty to eighty years, that's just that's not a good way to move forward. Exactly, and it's more expensive than ripping out vines. Yeah, absolutely. So what varietals do best in the vineyard? So the reds, the ones that do best are the Sangiovese. Sangiovese, of course, is the same grape uh, used to make Chianti. Mm -hmm. We can only call it Chianti for Chianti. Uh, Montepulciano. Um, which, unlike Sangiovese, which comes from Tuscany, Montepulciano comes from the province of Abruzzo, where my mother is from, and Sagrantino comes from the province of Umbria, east of Tuscany. So all of these make, you know, different types of red, but all deep red. Sangiovese, more aromatic, Montepulciano, more fruitful, Sagrantino, more tannic and dusty and dry. These are the main three reds that we have. We do keep a little bit of Petit Verdot, but I call it Pediroso, which is Thai, because I'm not going to call it Petit Verdot, right? and that's for blending purposes. And uh, the, in terms of the white, we only make one white, and that's Fermentino, which comes from Sardinia. So, we, And I think the reason that we only have four varietals is we want to concentrate and do well. I don't know if you're familiar with the old story about Smucker's Jellies. 
So there was this very famous case study about 30 years ago where Safeway supermarkets uh, divided their uh, stores, uh, 50 in each side. And one of the 50 stores, they had 12 different types of jellies that you could buy. And the other 50, you had five. And to their surprise, the one that had five outsold the one that had hmm. twice as much choices because people are overwhelmed by choices. Right. Yeah. So that's why we never make more than seven wines, ever. And this is, I think, they have more of that, ask too much of your customers. And frankly, how can you specialize on 30 things as opposed to some second things? Exactly. So that's why we only have four or five major varietals. Yeah, that drives me nuts in restaurants when you go in and you see this giant book of like hundreds of different dishes. It's like, what's the best thing? You're trying to cater too much. This is the Cheesecake Factory. It's like a New York <laughs> fall exactly what I, I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> page after page of pasta Alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> You just want to kill yourself. Spiral bound. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Yes, pretty much. It's insane. Yeah. Too many choices. Too many choices. So you mentioned that you're entering kind of the, the final phase or what you're thinking of being the final phase for the vineyard. So what else is left for the vineyard? Yeah, so is to plant more of what's working. So okay. we have uh, microplanting a couple thousand more vines of Sagrantino. We have more Vermentino coming in line, more Montpachano. We're thinking about Barbera, but I'm not sure it can do well here because it's a northern thing. But I think we're just planting more of the same. So the goal is really is to have seven wines. And right now we're about 5,000 cases. Our goal is to be about 7,000. We're 1,000 of everything. Yeah. And that's it. So our goal is to do a little bit better every year than constantly introduce a new wine. Mm. We'd rather be known for a certain set of wines than something new yeah. coming out. Let's talk a little bit about the winemaking style here and Apasamento and that sort of thing. Well, if you look at the at the the challenge that I had, I think all wine regions have east of the Rocky Mountains is that uh, we have humidity pressure. And if you look at the at the life of a grape, the grape is born, it's all acid, no sugar. And then it ripens, this ripening curve, and you measure that there's something called bricks or sugar levels. And then when it gets to 21, 22, a lot of people don't really appreciate is that the ripening stops. So we get to 21, 22 with consistency. In California or other arid desert areas, they get to 21, 22. So we both get to the same ripening point, and it stops. But what happens is when they stop, when the ripening stops, the skins get very soft, vulnerable to a lot of disease pressure. Mm-hmm. And we have disease pressure in spades here. Mm-hmm. We have all the, you know, all the apocalypse sites. Whereas in the arid areas, nothing happens. Not only does it rain, there's no clouds. So what happens is from 21, 22 bricks, it just dehydrates on the vines. So it doesn't get any riper, it just dehydrates. Mm. So we both get to that end of the ripening cycle, but we have to pick a 21, 22, and they could say, you know what, I'll come back in a month, and I'll pick a 27, 28 bricks. So what happens is they're just basically losing water, so their wine is more fruitful, it's more dark, it's more structured, whereas wines east of the Rockies, they don't have the profile, but they're beautiful, but they're more aromatic and floral. And that's fine, but that's not the style of wine that I like. Again, you got to have a house style. So for me, this is a disastrous problem because I, I want to drink what I, what I like. So I did some research, and then I stumbled upon the fact that my father's from the northern part of Italy, and uh, in an area called the Veneto, where they make a wine called Amarone. 
And if you had Amarone before, it's just a monstrous wine. It's huge. Yeah, it's dark. It's, it's like high alcohol. It's everything I love. And I went there and, and I said, how do you guys make this wine? Because you're in, the, you're in the wettest part of Italy. You have weather like we do. Right? And the guy goes, we dry our wines. And I go, what do you mean? And that's when I learned how they dry their wine. So they pick a 21, 22 sugars just like we do because they have to. But they had these huge drying rooms with the racks and they put grapes, one cluster at a time in these drying rooms, close the door. And through dehydration, 30 days or in some case longer, they open the drying room back and they come in at 27, 28 bricks. Wow. So they're replicating what happens in nature through dehydration. So I, I went there, and I learned how to dry under the Mazi family, M-A-S-I, very famous family. They've written a lot, a lot of papers on dehydration. And the process is called appassimento in Italy, which means to make a raisin. And the drying rooms are called frutaios, for fruit drying room. So how it works is the grapes come in at 21, 22. They go into the frutaios. They undergo the appassimento drying process. And when they come out... The grapes are called pasito grapes, the dried grapes. And then they go to the normal process. So by adding an intermediate step before they get processed, we get the kind of that West Coast fruit. Now, the, the, uh, the disadvantage is, is I'm sweating off 20% of the water. I was 20% of my volume yeah. every year. Oh, wow. Okay. Every year. But remember, it's just water. So when you look at our wines, the alcohol is much higher here, and the wine is darker and more fruitful. And that's just not, that's just the style I like. So what are some things you have to look out for when you're taking that whole process? I know there's hazards of making wine throughout the entire process, but specifically with drying, are there any cautions that you have to watch out? Be very careful because the grapes are sort of sitting in a room drying out. So about two years ago, we bought an ozone machine. And the thought process was, is uh, how do they dry fruit? How do you dry a pineapple or a banana? And what they do is they put them in these dry rooms and they shock it with ozone and mm. kills everything in the room. It also kills people. As well. oh, sorry, you have to be very careful. I've only lost four or five guys. So we, do it. So, so we shock the room, completely inert, and then we close the door. And what happens is it's, it's a, the grapes came out beautifully dried now with no disease. Oh, wow. Before we did that, we would lose a lot of this uh, through the net the natural uh, environment. Now we have 100% retention of grapes. The ozone machine was a huge, huge thing for us. So how much of the crop each year do you dry? Yeah, so that, and that depends upon the weather. So like 2017, which was probably the best weather we've had ever, meaning it's dry and sunny, we turned down dehydration to only about 10 to 15%. Whereas in 2018, it was very wet and rainy. We we have dehydration up to 20-30%. The reason why we do this is that we're trying to give our customers consistency of product. The worst thing is that you, you come one year and it tastes different from the next year. It's okay to have some sort of variation, mm-hmm. uh, but you, you don't want to be like McDonald's either where it's uniform. But you want to have some relative consistency. And so, the, so the drying process allows us to modulate what the environment has given us. And the eight, last year was the uh, 18 was the worst weather we've had ever, mm. and we pushed drying to the absolute limit. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of places throughout the rest of the state they're not drying their grapes, so they're making focusing on rosés and things like that. So, with pushing the drying to the limit for you, are you really focusing more on still developing your big reds, or are you 
doing lighter varietals or lighter vintages? I hate light everything, right? I'm, <laughs> okay. a, I'm, a, I'm a big monstrous red type of guy. Okay. So um, it, when something is is not successful, I think what you do is, is just rather than making a rosé, is you can you can declare a non-vintage and blend it into future sure. releases. Because mm. I think sometimes if a wine is not up to your standard, I don't just... Just dump it. Try to dump it. That's something that I think, you know, Joe and I have talked about this before. It's yeah. something that the state really needs to embrace a little bit more is focusing on that non-vintage thing because you really want to take the best of what you have instead of just putting out something that's a little less. Yeah, in fact, we're going to have a couple of non-vintages. The 2018, I'm declaring non-vintage for the Sangiovese because it, it, it just got absolutely hammered by the hurricane. Mm. So what we're doing is, I'm, I have, 17, we are quite heavy with fruit and it's a great year so I'm going to blend in 17-18s into Quarry Nine Vintage. Remember, 9 out of 10 years in Champagne are non-vintages because exactly. the weather sucks so much. Right. So mm-hmm. we got to it's okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so okay. Guys, yeah, exactly. And you know, I make a grande reserva but I only, I only designate that in certain years. Yeah. So an 18 was not a grande reserva year. So you mentioned grande reserva. Talk about that and what, how, what makes that wine so special. Well, I wanted to plant a flag that... We're just not a bunch of jamokes in the backwoods trying to make red wine. That We can make a red wine that can challenge some of the best wines. And so what I did was um, we did some experimentation, which actually changed the whole course of the winery. So as my research about my family and how they dried wines and stuff like that, I discovered also that a long time ago they didn't have stainless steel fermenters. They fermented <laughs> in oak. And so I bought some oak fermenters. And I'm in love with this, and I think we're getting more. I just bought, you know, four more oak fermenters, and because you're introducing wood, oak, to grapes and not finished wine, because most time, you know, uh, you see it is when it's already been you know, already sure. fermented. Mm-hmm. We're introducing a pre-fermentation, and I also discovered in my studies is that the farmers were quite poor a long time ago, and they basically only had one tank. So when the Sangiovese is ready, the Mappuccino went in the same thing at the same time. So that process is called co-fermentation. So what I did when I had the Grande Reserva, I said, let's co-ferment Sagrantino, Mappuccino, in oak, Mm -hmm. and see how it goes. So the step was we took our best Sagrantino, best Mappuccino, we dried them to one-third weight loss. Okay. We co-fermented them at the same time in oak. And this is probably the most exceptional wine that I've ever made. And I wanted to have a designation. So it's the only one that doesn't have the same label. The the label is a bumblebee. And the reason I put a bumblebee on there is when you you look, if you Google bumblebees, nature doesn't know how they fly. The the wings are too small. They don't flap fast enough for the body. Yet they fly through the sheer force of their desire. They just throw themselves and defy nature. So I shouldn't make a wine this good. <laughs> I define nature. This is my bumblebee wine. And I wanted to pri- and I price it at $55 because this is the best of what we can do. And I, and I feel we can rival the best of Virginia, which is twice as much as this, by the way. Mm-hmm. People are like, $55, you're out of your mind. You're never going to sell it. It, it, no one, you know, it. It's above the value price point in North Carolina. I made 200 cases. It lasted four months. Wow. So I think, you know, again, you have to fight the race, the quality. If the quality's not there, it's a race to the bottom. 
and that's a cost curve, and nobody wins on cost curves. You have to be massive for, you know, mechanization. So my thing is, is what well, tell Vineyard, do just focus on the best, and that will help your brand. Don't try to be everything to everyone. Have 30 wines, just five or six that define who you are. Because people know Raffle Vanny, Central to the Southern, Reds, dried wines. No, we have no sweet here. I, sweet, sweet's disgusting. I hate it, right? We have a very tight niche in that following. And we build our, our brand. So with the uh, the differences you take with the Grande Reserva, the oak fermenter, the co-fermentation, what do you feel that does to the wine itself? How do you think that it makes it stand out above the others? What the co-fermentation really does, it, this is the old one plus one equals three, because you're marrying them as fruit. And this is the this is the mystery here because because we also did experiment where we just took the same grapes and and fermented them separately and it's completely different in taste. I can't explain why, but it was it was much more the co fermentation way more complex, okay. more things going on. So I try to co ferment everything now as much as possible, cool. not just for the grande, because I think this is this marrying as grapes is a, it's an old school. I mean we try to look for technology. But oak fermentation, I think, is better than stainless steel. Cold fermentation is better than singular fermentation. So I think when you look back in history, you can learn more than looking forward sometimes yeah. and try and extrapolate. So I, I'm a big fan of uh, big fan of cold fermentation. Very nice. Kind of creates a more well-integrated final product. Much and the wine is, you know, it's because we push the drying to the very high levels. You're talking 16, 17, 18 percent. These are big wines. Yeah. Most people go home happy. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about sparkling wine. So you yep. recently introduced a, a sparkling wine. Yeah. So let's talk about that and why you thought that was important to, to, to add to the portfolio. Well, one of the wines that I used, the grapes I used to have and wines I used to make was Pinot Grigio. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, what are the two things that nobody will ever say in their entire life. The first is, I just washed my rental car. <laughs> the second is, Pinot Grigio is the greatest wine I've ever had in my entire life. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's never going to be great. And the reason it's going to be great is simple, is because it's one of the few white wines made from red grapes, and you can't have any skin contact. Mm-hmm. And the skin contacts the good bits. Yeah. So I said, you know what, this is not going to help our brand. So I and uh, decided to get rid of the Pinot, but I need a high acid and then I decided, well, let's look at sparkling. And there's the Italians, there's really two sparkling types of wine they make uh, that are dry. The first, of course, is Prosecco. And the second uh, is called Franciacorta. Franciacorta is uh, Prosecco, but with champagne-style yeastiness. Mm. Whereas Prosecco is generally high acid, no yeast. Mm. And I said, well, let's, let's look in this. And we did an experimentation with, uh, with our sparkling program. One way to do it is through, is through tanks, but uh, again, I'd rather do it by hand, particularly since I'm not doing it. Others are doing it. <laughs> so, of course, their labor is you know, <laughs> yeah. much cheaper than me. And, and we did 500 cases of our sparkling, very, very, very traditional method. We used some Pinot Grigio that, that we had a, you know, lying around, and we did some Traminette because that's all we could find. And uh, the difference is with sparkling, harvest out at 15, 16 bricks because you want it to be neutral in taste. And you can do that anywhere here because the grapes don't start right. to fall apart yet. And we made 500 cases of it, and we called the wine aguri. Aguri in Italian is a very, uh, when, you, when you toast someone, you say aguri. It means to your health or happiness. 
and it's been very successful. And I, it's become a permanent part of our lineup now. Mm-hmm. And it's good, sort of given me pause to think about the rosé as well. Mm. And I generally hate rosé, and people like rosé, so we're actually discontinuing our rosé um, year after next. And we're going to re- replace that with uh, what the Italians call cofondo, or the French call uh, pet nat. And what this basically, cofondo means uh, on the bottom. And so what it is basically, this is a style of fermentation where unlike the uh, unlike the Prosecco or Champagne, where there's a secondary fermentation, this is just a primary. So so the leaves are on the bottom. And it's good, it's unlike the Champagne, uh, like the Boulevard has Champagne pressure, this is more frizzante. So softer effervescence. And we're using 100% Montepulciano for that. And I made 100 cases to see what it was like. It's unbelievable. So it's yeah, you let us taste it mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago. And yeah. It was excellent. Yeah, so that's going to take over for the rosé. So and being Montepulciano, yeah. it's still slightly reddish colored, so exactly. it's like a rosé sparkler. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and the aromatics are extraordinary. Yeah. So the lineup is going to be just the f- in couple years. You're going to start with the Aguri, which is the high acid sparkler, and then you're going to have the uh, this uh, sparkler, which we're going to call Paradiso mm. for Paradise, because it makes people happy. And then we're going to have our Vermentino, which we're making completely different style starting this year. Mm. We're going to make it in uh, uh, oak. We're going to ferment skin contact in oak. Wow. It'll be much fatter. And then you're going to have the Sangiovese, the Montpichano, and the Sagantino. Awesome. And then we started to experiment with the port a little bit. And uh, I love port. Uh, and it, but the Italians don't, don't, you know, port tends to be sweet, but the Italians make a, make a, they have a dessert red mm-hmm. that's like port, but not as sweet, but more acid. And it's from the area that my family's from. It's called Ricciotto. Mm-hmm. And it, it's grown around Valpocella. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Okay. And I can tell you, when I open up, whenever I open up a port or Ricciotto at my house, my wife says three things. You're drunk. You're <laughs> I'm going to bed. Because okay. usually it's after four bottles, the cigars come out, you start pontificating. Yeah. And I was like, I'm out of here. Oh, no. Exactly. <laughs> Which happened just yesterday, actually. Oh, God. <laughs> exactly. It's a frequent occurrence. <laughs> so, Jay, you've, uh, throughout the conversation, you've really referenced a lot of familial history. And you really seem to do a lot of research about where your family came from and embracing the past. How do you think that plays out here at Raffaldini in North Carolina? No, I think how it, how it plays out for me is that everything we do has to be tied into the brand. Meaning we have the brand being Italian, so it's Italian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So we have Italian food, we have Italian cooking demonstrations, we have Italian olive oil tasting. So we have to be tied to the brand so we don't have like... Goofy T-shirts say I went stupid, or oh I went to Italy and I got the stupid T-shirt. I think that kind of weakens the brand. Mm. So everything we do is from the landscaping. Everything has to be that focused because that's what we're trying to. How can I explain? When Italians come here, other Italians, the taste it provokes a deeply emotional response to them. Mm. So the building reminds them of where they grew up with their family. The wine reminds them of where they grew up. So when I can stir that part of their soul, it's kind of broadening the community for them. And a lot of Italians, you know, not surprisingly, come here all the time. So that was the first step of my mission. The second step of my mission 
was I believe that if I made great wine but I was by myself, nobody would care. So I believe this business principle is called clustering. So my second step was to get like-minded people around me. Okay. So the first people that we reached out to were family friends, Dr. Piccioni. And his vineyard is up and running, excellent vineyard called Piccioni Vineyards. He's adjacent to me. And people were like, oh, you're out of your mind, competition. I said, no, we're making a destination. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So now I have three other families that bought adjacent to me. Uh, and one is uh, Bill and Teresa Piatstich, and their vineyard is called Sotrio, and they started planting already. And then we have Scott and Liz Barone, and their vineyard has been called Castello Barone. And then we have Jeff and Sherry, and their vineyard is going to be called Due Barque, which means two boats. <laughs> so... Five vineyards, all Italian, wow. all contiguous to each other. So and what we're doing is we're all planting one white and one red in common. Mm. And that white is Fermentino, and the red is Montpachano. So Dr. Piccioni has it, we have it, and eventually you'll be able to taste five different Fermentinos and five different Montpachanos made in five different ways. So kind of like do a horizontal varietal exactly. tasting in the same so, contiguous area. That's, that's going to be awesome. And then you can see how, because you might think, well, it should taste the same because these vineyards right now, it can be radically different. Mm -hmm. And that's when they have the, what's well, the teachable moment. The site's different. The style is different. Exactly. Um, so yeah, your style of Fermentino is very different from the style next door, Pacelli. And they're both great. Yeah. And this is going to, I think it'd be really eye-opening to a lot of people. How, 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 different a wine can be when they're just next to each other. So I'm very excited about the future. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about um, the Swan Creek ABA. So the Atkin Valley ABA was established uh, early on in the wine, as the wine industry was going. The Swan Creek ABA came a little bit later. So talk about how that ABA came about and why you think it's important. You know, I was the I was the driver and the petitioner for Swan Creek. And how the, uh, the Atkin Valley ABA was being originally drawn, I was okay with it. But someone with a lot of money and a large vineyard protested that Lexington was not part of the <laughs> AVA, and uh, we had to redraw it because of that. Hmm. And I felt that was not appropriate because it's you know, 500 feet elevation versus 13, 400 feet. So as that AVA went through, I felt that I needed to do something to, to classify our sub-region. And that's when the idea of the Swan Creek should be narrow or mountainous or mountainy or hilly. And that was the idea to have a sub. And initially it was meant with a lot of derision. But, you know, if you go to other regions, there's, you could yeah, do, you could, right. there's like 20 sub-appellations in Sonoma. Yeah, certain right. Sonoma. Exactly. So, exactly. So, and that was an important driver. And now we have two others, I think, AVAs or three others, at least in North Carolina, that I'm aware of. Um, so that, that was the important thing is that the, the Atkin Valley AVA was critical because it told people we had an AVA, and then you started to have the normal branching off of the sub-AVAs. And I think you're, you were onto something, too, because the Swan Creek, it, it really does have a very different topography and geology and, and, and climate, too. I mean, they're very different from this area to the other side of the valley. So. Yeah, and that's to be embraced. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was that was the key thing, and I'm very glad I did that. And I think that that, that spawned, you know, Paul River... And I think there's the one in the mountains. Um, Appalachian High Country. Appalachian High Country, exactly, which, yep. is, which is great. Very cool. Yeah. So I, think I, so I would think that now I tell people we have maybe 140 vineyards or whatever the number is in North Carolina. I think there's 330 in Virginia or 340, something like that. 
I think we'll be equal to Virginia in five years. I believe that deeply. But I think what's interesting is the last five or ten vineyards that have been started have been people that A, were out of town, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, or didn't have a family farm. Mm. So the first wave of vineyards, naturally, you had people trying to repurpose the tobacco farm or dairy right. farm. Well, that doesn't mean it's necessarily the right place for a vineyard. True. And I understand they were trying to, you know, really keep it going. But what's relevant at this, at this, this next wave of people, if you're an out-of-town person, you can put your vineyard anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact you're choosing to put it here says this is a valid wine region. I'm going to put my money here. And it, it, if you don't have a family farm, you're looking to buy the best farm, even if you're here. So I think that's why the next wave is going to be driven by people with significant wine in their DNA, rather than a repurposing, because a lot of farms that were repurposed, they don't even drink wine. Mm. And so they don't know what's supposed to taste like. So I think this next wave of investment is going to be significant and fast. Awesome. We're excited for that. That's definitely something to be looking forward to. So purchasing the, the, the land in 2001, planting the grapes in 2002, you've been around for a while now. How do you feel that the experimentation, the quality of wine, the wine that you produce has impacted the industry in the state? Well, I think the uh, um, a lot of the a lot of the improvement in the in the in the wine industry or the quality of wine really is a function of two things. One, the first function is the vines are getting older. Mm-hmm. You know, when vines are three, four years old, they're just they're you know like they're like adolescents. You want to beat the snot on them because they're pain in the asses, right? So, but when they kind of get to that. Older start because if you look at the if you look at the life of a vine, it's kind of like us, you know. They can live 60, 80 years, and they're sort of at their at their peak of forty to sixty, and we're very far from that, obviously. But we're getting out of the out of the uh, elementary school phase, and and now they're expressing themselves. So I think that the natural year over year, the wines are getting better. Second thing also is the the educational talent skill level is getting better because we have schools popping up now with people that want to make this a career. And we also, uh, my winemakers from California, when you can draw people from California here, you're doing something right as a wine region. Mm. So I think every year it goes by, quality should be getting better, the skill level is getting more technical, it's getting more advanced, all those are positive outcomes, I think. Awesome. Yeah, so my main message when I when I... When people say, you know, should I start a vineyard? And I said, listen, um, do it, do it, do what you're passionate about, and understand that that the only romance in this industry is drinking the wine. <laughs> there is no romance. It's, hard work. it's a lot of work. It's Lots mostly farming or hostage to the weather, particularly in here. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, what's important is, and I'm starting to see pop up now, are the secondary and tertiary aspects of this business, meaning. The cottages, the restaurants, the mm-hmm. B&B, the artisanal cheesemakers, the potters. Those are things that, because if you look at Napa Valley, if every $1 that gets spent on wine, $7 gets spent on non-wine. Mm-hmm. The lodging and the food. So right. that part needs to catch up to where the wineries are. Right. And that, because that, that's when people, because right now people, what do they do? They drink and they go home. Yeah. Right. Why don't you spend the night? Eat. <laughs> do some shopping. That, I think, is a critical part of this next leap forward for us. Yeah. As a native of Wilkes County and seeing what's going on, you know, I would hope that 
the local officials here would have some of that foresight and actually start planning a little bit more and embracing that. North Wilkesboro and Wilkesboro are very cute towns and could become those types of destinations that you're talking about oh. easily because of the scenic beauty and, and because of what's going on out in, in the vineyards here in Rhonda. Yeah. Um, but it's going to take some, some foresight, some planning, and some action to get that happen because this area does need yeah. more jobs. Yeah, it really does. And so, the, the, the interesting thing about the, uh, you know, when you read the government has these big tax incentives to bring Amazon here and all this stuff, well, this industry had no tax incentives. Yeah, right. This is all self-financed. Right. And that's why it's going to sustain itself because it's hard for the government to pick winners and losers. Mm -hmm. But when something happens organically, it's happening organically because of the local environment gives it certain competitive advantages. This area can grow wine. It's scenic. It's beautiful. Why is Greensboro a transportation hub? Because you got the airports, you have all, all the crossroads, which is why that's, that's emerging organically. So I think, you know, to your point is, the government just, they don't need to so much give, give tax advantages, just, just let it happen naturally. And that, because I, I think will happen. Be very, supportive. Exactly. Yeah. And don't exactly. hold back that's, the progress. It's, yes. it's a good thing. Uh, exactly, exactly. You know, it's because I mean, you don't know what the next 20 years is going to be like, so just encourage it along the way. Yeah. So what's left the biggest impact on you, having been through this all these years? Well, I had the great fortune of starting this when I was 40, because I knew it would take a tremendous amount of capital uh, and time, and it's taken a tremendous amount of capital and time, uh, and I was fortunate to be able to underwrite that. What the, the biggest impact for me are watching the people when they come here. Whether they're Italian or not Italian, I just the emails I get about, uh, and all of them describe what I call an exhale moment. Like, oh. you know, and they just because I think life is is life is too quick, and when you go to Europe, life is slower, mm. and they have less, but they also have more at the same time. Mm. So less is more culture, and I'm a less is more person, and. I'd rather spend an hour with a bottle of with a friend than have a flat screen TV and the latest iPhone 10. It's just not what matters to me. And I think as you get older, you tend to appreciate those those uh, exhale moments. So what's really wonderful to me is the emails I get to people like, you know, you've reconnected something in me. To me, that's worth as much as the wine. That's a great perspective because it really shows the connection, the, the value that you're bringing to the area, to the state, to the industry. Because it's all about, if I asked all your viewers one question, or listeners, right, <laughs> right, one question, uh, they would give me the same answer. And the answer would say, the question would be, what's the greatest wine you've ever had in your life? And they would, the reason they'd give me the same answer is they'd give me a three-part answer. What that wine was, where you were, and who you're with. Because <laughs> wine is context. Yeah. And I can tell you, it always gets three parts of that answer. And my, my goal here is to, Give all three parts. What's your favorite? Um, you're you're gonna sit down and have a meal. What's your favorite food and wine pairing? Yeah, so uh, that's a, that's a very common question I get, and the common answer is uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, for example, um, if I'm if I'm by myself or with something at a business meeting, I always drink wine at lunch, by the way, um, even in my job in New York. Um, I'll have something, you know, like in New York, I'll have a simple 
a simple, like a simple Sangiovese, some, some pasta. But if I'm if I'm at a lunch in Europe, that same lunch, I know that lunch is going to stretch for two hours. Mm. Then the wine is totally different. Again, it's the context, right? Right. right. And and hey, the, the best. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, one of my clients uh, four or five years ago was this big institutional investor in in Italy, and uh, it's my one of my Wall Street clients. And he said, "Jay, you need to fly to Rome." Uh, I said to my my partner, "All right, we're going to get fired because we weren't doing we were doing okay managing this money, not great." So I, I flew to Rome. Uh, it was a beautiful. May, we had lunch at 1.30, alfresco, hmm. tremendous day, it's just he and I, right, we wrote a bottle of wine, he said, you know, your performance is not what I expected at all, I said, I know, second bottle of wine, he said, uh, it's pretty hard to make money in these markets, I said, it's really hard for us, third bottle of wine, it's about 3.30, he goes, you're trying, right, and we're trying, Fourth bottle of wine around four fifteen. and went to almost three hour mark. He goes, Keep up the good work, I'll see you next year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, so the answer to your question is that it's so much of that is context and just slowing down and that I just enjoy a wide range of wines, mm. and particularly when I'm with people that I enjoy being with. By the way, that client is still with me today. Oh, also, yeah, exactly. Everyone, every now and again, it pays to have a three-hour lunch. That wow, is that more <laughs> more now than then. Yeah. Exactly. So, what would you say is next for Raffaldini Vineyards? Yeah, well, in terms of the uh, what's next at the Vineyard and Winery, it's all about every year just do a little bit better. So, I was driving up here. I was talking to somebody, and I says, you know, you only one of my favorite other quotes is by Mario Andretti. Uh, the race car driver, and he said, um, if everything is under control, you're driving too slowly. And so you're always going to be on the edge. So we're always going to be experimentation. Mm. You know, like we're now, right now we're pushing the co-fermentation. We changed our entire barrel regime, mm. meaning we used to have the small barrels that are, that are known as barriques. We got these huge Italian uh, things called botis. So one is the equivalent of 11 small barrels, wow. and you, I'll show them to you later at the winery. They're incredible. Incredible. So they're changing the aging process, different uh, wine to wood ratios. So we're always doing experimentation. We're experimenting with new training techniques in the vineyard. But for us, if we can get a 1% improvement every year, I'm delighted by that. Okay. In terms of uh, expanding or anything, no. No? <laughs> um, um, demand for our wines is very strong. We don't distribute almost nowhere, so 99% is right out the door. And I did that for a couple of reasons is I want people to come here to see what this is about. So I spent my money building a villa and not building a distribution because mm. I want people to know this is what we're, this is what we're trying to do. And frankly, I don't want to conquer the world. I want to have enjoy wine with my friends. And so if we sell out, we sell out, you know, I'll just raise prices. Right. But I just want to do better every year. So it's about quality as opposed to quantity. So nothing dramatic on the horizon. Okay. Just incremental changes and improvements and be better the next year than you were this year. I think that's the key to success. Great. Uh, we, you know, moonshots are great, but most don't work. <laughs> so what are you looking most forward to in the future? Other than retiring in five years? That's, uh, <laughs> that's something to look forward to. I look forward to that every day. Yeah. I think uh, seeing the vines 
start to express themselves even more because there's still, I mean, if you think about it, if vines are at their peak 40 to 60, unfortunately I'll be dead by then. <laughs> and that's just a fact of life. Uh, but they're on a path that gives me some satisfaction. And the, the part that I enjoy is my daughter's involved in the industry. My nieces and nephews are involved indirectly, and they love it here. So the thing about a family vineyard, it tends to be very centering. And, and before, you know, families families tend to be diaspora. Boom, everybody goes their own way. But now here, there's no question where they go. Thanksgiving or Christmas. There's no question where they come during the harvest. And that's wonderful to keep a family reconnected like that. And that's the best part of this entire entire journey. The family stays together. Nice. Awesome. So what is it that you want visitors, customers to know when they come to Raffledini? First is, I am not making a profit, so stop asking me. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I intend to make profit before I die. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, the, and the second thing is, um, is that when you come here, to really appreciate the fact that life is meant to be slower. Mm. We really want to slow people down. And I did that even... When you park your car, I made this winding pathway through these beautiful gardens, even before you get to the villa and mm. view of the mountains. So I really want people just to just take it easy because life is short and it doesn't get any longer. And capturing moments with your friends and so what I want them to take away is, yes, I had this great wine at Raffaldini, but it was beautiful. I was with my friends. Again, the context. Yeah. Is, but if they can take the context with them, then I've done my job as a, not just a businessman, but but as a human being. It's that a great concept to carry through. Yeah. That experience is always the thing that you remember most is the experience you had. So, always. Yeah, and that walk through the garden is one of my favorite things here. It's, yeah. it's any, any time of year. Yeah, any time of year. Yeah, it's yeah. common. Yeah. Yeah. It you, know, I mean, you don't want to be on the cell phone, and blah, 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 that you're tasting, <laughs> and sticking the gum under the tasting bar. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So we're winding down here. Any, any last part or parting words of wisdom that you want to give? Well, I think, well, for the other, those in the industry, I have no, no wisdom to give other than, um, you know, you only learn by taking risks. And, and, and there, is, there is nothing as a mistake. It, it, it's a teachable moment not to be repeated. So you always have to risk, 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 because we still don't know what this area is capable of, mm-hmm. which means you have the opportunity to, the opportunity to define it. Okay? So we're not hostage. We can make our future. So from the industry, just push, 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 focus on quality. Don't, don't focus on the race to the bottom. People will always pay for quality. Mm. That's the main message. Have a narrow focus. And for, the, and for the, uh, the customers out there, the next 10 years are going to be stunning. The growth, the quality of wines, I think it's going to be wonderful for everyone involved in this industry, from, from, from production all the way through consumption. Right. Jay, thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You bet. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Jay Raffaldini for taking the time to talk to us about Raffaldini Vineyards and how wine is all about relaxing and celebrating the moment. And if you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. This helps others find our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers!